is the voice of King Jesus, and fear is the voice of the enemy. Um, and that's why Jesus so many times uh, throughout the Gospels with his disciples says, fear not. Um, it's actually the most repeated command throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Forge America Missional Podcast. My name is Roland Smith. I'm your host from Colorado Springs, and on the line with us is Terry Ishii from Texas. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, and Alan Bradford from Knoxville, Tennessee. How are you? Good. Good to be what, here. What, what's the weather doing like for you guys right now? Are you talking in Tennessee? It's still yeah, just yeah. been raining. It's just raining and raining and raining and more raining. We've actually declared February as monsoon season here in Tennessee. <laughs> you started fishing around the square out of your office window. Yet? <laughs> we probably could. We probably could. Let's just yeah. be honest. Yeah. What about yeah, today? Is beautiful. It is sunny, blue sky. Uh, it's uh, chilly. You know, enough to you have to put a hoodie on. But yeah, it's beautiful. Squirrels are running around outside. It's great, man. Just dig it in. So I'm in Colorado, and uh, this is our season. So we have been in a week straight of uh, 20 and 30 degree weather, and about every other day it's snowing. So we got snow last night, and it's trying to snow again right now. So anyway, at least it's pretty, and uh, it doesn't cause floods. Right, Alan? Right. Right. Um, well, hey, I want to get us into this. Um, t- Alan, you're working your way down the messiah path right <laughs> like you haven't quite finished yes. it terry or terry and i are on to whole new series and movies and things like that but you're going to get done maybe by next week right maybe maybe i mean this is what happens when you got a you know a full-time job and you've got three kids and you just don't have time to watch this stuff oh but yeah no i actually have four kids and three full-time jobs yeah, so. i don't i don't know how to i don't know how to keep up with you then I'm, you're just better at <laughs> me um maybe i like sleep too much but no okay. i actually i got through the eighth episode uh, i don't want to ruin anything but i got through the eighth episode and it feels like things have definitely taken a turn um, okay just like oh, all right we'll just save it because no no ninth already, episode ninth episode ninth episode we gave it a terry rating i think last week but when you finish season one, we're gonna we're gonna do a deep dive okay. critique on it. So um, I like how you're giving that. me homework. But, Get it done. But hey, I discovered I'm always like looking for media and stuff like that and shows and that kind of thing. And I discovered something. I, I texted you guys, and I don't think you've probably had time to to look at it. It absolutely blew my mind. It popped up on my Facebook feed in the algorithm somehow, and. Um, it was this thing called the chosen and it had a preview. And so I hit it and it was a TV series that's driven by an app. Right. And it's a Christian presentation of the gospels. Well, of the life of Jesus pulling from the gospels and, um, I was, and it's crowdfunded, totally crowdfunded app TV series. And so I hit it uh, just to see what it was like. And the first, uh, the preview and the first episode was just awesome. A couple things, Dallas Jenkins, I don't know, he's the creator. I don't know this guy's name. Uh, Obviously, uh, well, well done. I, I think he's, maybe he's the director also. Um, 
Eric Avari is, I had to look him up, but I've seen him in a lot of stuff. He always plays kind of a Jewish guy, but it's got some really, really good actors. The coolest thing that I, that about it though, was that, um, Jesus is human, right? I mean, it's, he's not just like always holy. And yeah. so like the preview, um, that just caught me was it was Jesus and a leper is coming up to Jesus and the disciples and um, the disciples start freaking out and Jesus, instead of just saying something holy, right. Turns around and it's like, just relax guys. I've got this kind of thing. You know, that wasn't exactly the line, (laughs) but you know what I mean? It's like he obvious, they obviously take time to say if Jesus was, was like just really interacting on a human level, what would he have said besides just the scripture quotes or whatever? And so um, I totally not only downloaded this thing, but I joined the crowdfund for season two. So um, it's called The Chosen. Um, And Terry, I mean, you you like walk in movies and TV and all that kind of stuff and, and cultural media a lot. Have you ever seen like a TV series that's a crowdfunded app for your phone? No, no uh, I've, I've seen TV series that have been crowdfunded. Um, Veronica Mars did a movie that was one of my favorites, but uh, it, in app form, um, that's, yeah, that's some millennial stuff right there, man. Like I, <laughs> I, bought, I bought a big TV for a reason. I don't want to sit there and watch it on my, on my phone. So I know you can cast it to your TV, which yeah. is, is good, but, no, that's it's kind of I love the the uh, the creativity to that, and uh, it's cool. You know, we talk a lot in Forge the importance of being innovative. Uh, you have to innovate if you're going to reach the world, uh, and this is just another example of you know some some Christian entrepreneurs who are being innovative to, to right. do it differently. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to take content and take it to either a network where you feel like you have to sell out and you know maybe make. Mary Magdalene a little too sexy. So no (laughs) one company likes it, but then on the flip, take it to a Christian company where, you know, Jesus saying, Hey dude, chill out is blasphemous, you know, but just do it the way you want to do it and get it out there. I I think it's brilliant. It's great. So, so you guys are making me sound like I'm going to be the uh, bitter old man here. Um, So here, because when I first did it, and I, I, I downloaded it. You're like, ah, oh, Roland wants me to check this thing out. I downloaded it. I started looking at it. And the first thing that pops into my head, uh, I didn't get into the innovation of it. I got into, this feels like Christmas plays to me. And, and this is what I mean. Hmm. You ever go to a church and they do the Christmas plays? And they do this, even the ones that do like amazing jobs, right? They do this amazing Christmas play. But who's it for? <laughs> It's for, well, the people that are already in the church, right? It's for yeah. the Christians who already enjoy that stuff. Right. And they do, you know, even the bad ones. It's like, so the parents can come, they can clap. They go, oh, this is really good. You know, I get to see my kid singing whatever on stage and you get to be, but it's already for the Christians who are there. Now, I don't know if that's what's going on with this thing, but that was like the first thing that popped in my head. It could be that I'm just getting cynical, <laughs> but yeah. 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 You're probably not cynical. I mean, it probably is. It was probably created with that crowd in mind, but the, my hope, and again, I haven't seen it, but even the, even the thing that Roland speaks to in that first episode, um, I mean, we, as believers, we need examples of Jesus, uh, being incarnated in very 
natural ways that we can live out and and that we can mimic that we can that we can say I, we tell people all the time in forge you got to incarnate right we, you are a sent people to 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 go and incarnate to go deep but like most people think when we incarnate, we have to be holier than that. We have to be like, oh, I'm going to go hang out on the driveway, but I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to do this or I'm going to make sure my language is pristine so that I'm a good witness. Rather, you know, can we just go and be human, but like be informed by Jesus? So seeing images of Jesus living that way is refreshing and hopefully challenging for people that they can live this out. Yeah, let me go. Let me circle back to something you said, Roland. You said it's it's Jesus. He's human, and he's not always holy. Um, and we actually here on my staff, we had this. Uh, we're we're going through the Book of Leviticus, and we're going through the last little Book of Leviticus, and that's a hard that's a hard part to teach. Sure. But we just kept circling back to this idea of holiness, mm-hmm. and what is holiness? Because you know, God's saying, "I'm holy. I want you to be holy." Here's all these like just crazy laws and rules and all these things. But if you really circle around the idea of what holiness is, we've always seen it as some sort of ethereal yeah. thing out there, right? But right. really struggling with the concept of holiness. Uh, this is one of the things I'll do when I was a youth minister. I would do with our kids. Uh, I would, we would talk about uh, the different Jesuses that we have known, mm-hmm. right? You know, you got Jesus as uh, the Alabama sheriff, you know, step out of line and, and you're done. You've got Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend. Oh, man, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Um, and, and giving different interpretations. Actually, one of the fun things we would do is I would show our students like different movies about Jesus. Uh, so like some of my favorites are Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. you know, Cotton Patch Gospel, some of these old, these old ones. And I would say, now, how does this resonate with the Jesus that you read in scripture? You know, what, 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 what seems like, oh yeah, I could see Jesus being like this, but this doesn't seem like Jesus. Cause you know, we got to constantly come back to what uh, the scripture is telling us about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Um, but it was so much fun to see kids kind of struggle with their concept of who Jesus is. And I, I agree with you, Terry. We do. Yeah. We have to keep struggling with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I what I think of is in the Gospels. I can't remember which which Gospel does it say we don't know all the stories and miracles and everything couldn't be written down. You yeah, know, so, and at the um, end of John, I think. Yeah, into John maybe, and um, so you know, obviously the writers of the Gospels they put these teachings and these phrases that are really important to grasp. But they might not. They might not have put like the the little sidebar conversations or kind of the way that he joked. You know, we don't really see jokes from Jesus, but I'm sure he was probably the funniest guy on earth, right? Um, and so, what what it made me think of was not so much that you're um, bringing Jesus down from something that's holy, but that you're adding that incarnational human part of who he must have been. By just um, taking a little bit of creativeness, uh, creative license, and they even say that. Uh, they have like a few things at the beginning of each episode. They take a little bit of creative license, and they're using the scriptures, and they're not changing the story, but they're just saying, don't you think Jesus might have just like turned around and said, hey, hey, don't get so worried about this. I've got it, you know, or, or said it in a real world uh, way. What's really interesting too about this is I, I think I saw this on the day that it was getting launched on Facebook. And um, right now, when you pull up the app, 
um, there are 6,744,000 views in just maybe a week. And if you watch the counter, there's like two or three or four views every five seconds. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's added 100,000 like, because it was 6.6 .6 when I pulled it up yesterday. Yeah, so it's it's like catching fire. There's a little share button and it's just like apps and smartphones and everything else. So I'm actually, I'm going to watch through it, but I, I'm thinking that, um, you know, we may, our even our missional uh, leadership team uh, for Forge Colorado Springs here, we may, we may start watching these because you can watch one, have some discussion around it, you know, and kind of use it as a guide. So anyway, um, I'm going to keep watching this and that's your next homework assignment, Alan. You got to keep up with us, um, but is to download the chosen. I think you can watch all of season one free, uh, but then if you, if you crowdfund it, then you own those, you can download them and maybe they'll do that for each season and you can crowdfund it for as little as like 14.95 so it's not like super super expensive anyway found it really really interesting the chosen today we're going to um jump into a little interview and talk that I got to have with uh, Dan White Jr. Um, who I have learned is one of my favorite people on earth. Um, and kind of what's behind that is I had, I had actually met via email Dan's wife, Tanya, before I ever talked to or met Dan because I started uh, writing monthly for the V3 blog. And Dan's real connected with J.R. Woodward and V3 and that kind of that tribe. And, uh, but I went to Praxis, which is their annual gathering of their church planters. And Dan was there releasing his new book, Love Over Fear. And um, I had started reading Love Over Fear before Praxis and, um, and then finished it afterwards. And when I read Love Over Fear, I expected to meet this really kind of soft-spoken guy who's kind of like, well, not priestly, but you know, he's just not divisive. He's like really cool and calm and collected and all that. And that's exactly who I met. And, um, I just love hanging out with Dan cause he brings my blood pressure down. And, um, <laughs> he, I mean, he just has this way of doing it. And I think that book is, um, it will do that also. And it's probably the hardest read that I've had in the last few months because I naturally do not want to be apolitical, a denominational, um, a opinionated. I don't, I don't really just want to walk the third way Jesus way of love. I actually want to engage with opinions and with my, you know, whether I'm left or right of things or whatever, I want to let people know, no, 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 this is what the kingdom should look like. And I think what Dan is, is um, proposing is that we've kind of lost sight of the third way, you know, the Jesus way, uh, walk in love, love, love your neighbor, but also love your enemy. 
And in, in this time, in our culture, it's incredibly hard, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, man. Um, so I, I think this book is so timely uh, just because one of the things I've been thinking about a lot of lately is that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that talks about weird to be a, about a ministry of reconciliation. And if you just think about our world right now, uh, just, just go with our country, with our nation. I don't see a lot of ministry of reconciliation, at least uh, publicly, right? Like out in, in the way that we have become a divided uh, people. Um, I mean, there, if you, if you read stuff, there are people talking about, Oh, if, if our division was geographic, we would have another civil war. That seems a bit drastic, but that's, that's the deep division that we're feeling right now. And I always thought the St. Corinthians five, this whole, we're about the minister of reconciliation. That's kind of our job description as people who follow Jesus. We're about bringing people together just as God has brought us to him uh, to the point where uh, one of my things is um, another TV show. Uh, do you guys know Sarah Silverman? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, uh, what I know of her, um, you know, she's uh, a Jewish by heritage. I think she's atheist by religion. Is that what you would say? Um, you know, she's, she's a comedian, could be a little crass, um, all of that. Well, after the most recent election, the most recent presidential election, she created this uh, TV show just called um, I Love You America with Sarah Silverman. And the whole premise here, and I'm, I'm reading this straight off of uh, Wikipedia, was looking to connect with people who may not agree with her personal opinions through honesty, humor, genuine interest in others, and not taking herself too seriously. So I'm like, oh my gosh, she's she's about the ministry of reconciliation. She's going she's to people. Yeah. yeah, she's going yeah. to people that totally don't think like her. You know, she may lean one way drastically, and she's like, okay, something's going on. And I, I to me, I feel like this is God saying, all right, guys, if, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to get somebody to do it. Someone's going to lead the way. And so that's been, for, for years now, that's been my rallying cry. And I feel like uh, Dan's book, is is entering into that and i love following dan on the social medias because he has yeah. some great one and i sometimes you get the one-liners and you're like eh, whatever yeah. but his are just like oh that's good like like oh man that like spoke truth to my soul um so yeah i think it's an incredibly timely book yeah yeah, yeah hit, that, oh go ahead terry yeah well i was gonna say the the thing that i love about his book is you know it, it's funny you, you you learn things and then you forget things um, and for me, the thing that I always seem to forget, uh, is what the opposite of love is. And it just, for some reason, I always struggle with that. And I always just assume hate is the opposite of love. Um, and I love that his book is, is a reminder that, you know, it's, it's not hate that is the opposite of love. It's fear. And, and so fear, uh, and as the star Wars fan that I am should, I should know that fear is the root of hate, but, um, yeah, but it's, it's so true that, and when we look at, we look at our society, we look at our culture, man, we are a fear driven society. Um, and there's no decorum, there's no civility, there's no respect. There's definitely not love towards one another. Uh, we're nowhere, we're nowhere close to it. Uh, and it's because, I don't think it's is hate, which I think hate does exist and it's vile and it's evident quite often, but you see a lot of fear and you see people with good hearts, good intentions who are just overcome with fear. And I, so I love that Dan is trying to address that, that we need to deal with the fear issue and that'll solve a lot of our problems. Yeah. And I, I mean, we, we get into that a little bit in the, in the interview for sure. Um, and I wonder how many other social issues 
are actually come out of the root system of fear as opposed to, you know, hate or, or, you know, real strategic differences for our country or whatever, you know, so things like racism or, um, you know, issues around women and those kinds of things. It, I think a lot of that stuff is just birthed out of our fear of really knowing other people or our fear of releasing our own traditions, like the way that we were raised. Um, I mean, I was raised in the South and I mean, I can tell you, I, you know, I came up around a pretty um, kind of race, soft racist culture in my family. And it was something that once I moved out of uh, Arkansas, it was something I, w- I just felt free. You know, yeah. I was able to kind of engage what I felt like the kingdom should look like as a believer. And, and uh, Kitty and I talk about it whenever we go back to the deep South and visit family or whatever. We, it's, kind of, it's kind of like PTSD, but we can also kind of smell it in the air. You know, it's kind of like still there a little bit. And, uh, and I think a lot of it is probably fear, you know? So here's my question for you. It's it's an interesting topic to enter into Roland. Um, and this is a fun one to do. And I, I only do this with people I I consider safe, but, uh, like the, the hundreds that are listening to the podcast, the hundreds, you're, you're a lot more optimistic than me. It's probably, (laughs) yeah, yeah. The tens, it's all our wives and our moms. Um, (laughs) hi mom. So here's the question. Um, do you know the moment you realized you were racist? Um, and, and, and while you're thinking about it, let me give you mine. So okay. I grew up in Germany. It was an army brat. Dad was in the military. We spent 10 years over there from the ages of four to 14. And over there in the military, black, white, Hispanic, it didn't matter. Everybody's just green, right? There was, right. I mean, there were differences. You recognize those differences, but we, it didn't matter. But in Germany, in the German culture, they had a lot of uh, people from Turkey. So the Turks came over and they would take all like the menial jobs, you know, the, the working jobs, the, the janitorial jobs. I remember in our school, we had what was called a putzfrau, which is like the, the lady who just cleans up, right? And I was incredibly racist towards the Turkish because it, it was the community I grew up in. You just made fun of them. It was just, it was just how it was. And then when I moved to the South, I moved to Tennessee when I was 14, I never understood a lot of the racial tension that was going on until I started to put it within that context. And then it's like, oh my gosh, like that, that's who I was. Like I was definitely in that space where um, I looked down on another person and it was just, it was common. It's what you did. Just what you were saying, Roland. It's like, no, this is, it's just the air you breathe almost. But so do you guys have, do you have a moment where you realize your own? Yeah, I, I actually told this story um, in a message that I gave at our church, you know, so to, you know, a thousand people on a Sunday, which was a little uncomfortable. Um, but I, it was like my, my grandparents and some people in my family were kind of instilling some racism, um, which they would call just, you know, it was accepted cultural separation right in the deep Mm. south but really and truly it's racism at its core but my grandfather had a car dealership and um, i would go hang out down there uh, when i was young and there was a guy named frank a black guy that he was the one that uh, went and picked up parts and uh, delivered parts to place or places or take people home if they dropped their car off and did general cleanup and all that kind of stuff around the shop so everyone knew frank and i started hanging out with frank 
as like a, you know, 10 to 12 year old uh, kid. And I remember walking in to the restroom and Frank, me following him and him saying, no, 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 no. You use that one. And it was the first time that I realized that at my grandfather's shop, there was a colored stall and there was a everyone else stall. Wow. You know, I, I recognized it. And I remember asking my dad about it. And then also on the outside, there was a water fountain. And I remember going, following Frank to get a drink of water and him telling me, no boy, you use that one. And so even he was kind of supporting this cultural separation. So I don't, I think at my core, I was always fighting racism. Like I didn't believe in it because Frank was my best friend at the shop. You know, I loved hanging out with him. Uh, but it was kind of this, my, the culture I was in, my family and some other things kept trying to drip water into it, even though I was letting it leak out. You know what I mean? So it was, um, and then when, like I said, when we moved, it was like when you're out of the environment, then all of a sudden you can kind of breathe clean air, you know? What about you, Terry? Yeah, <clears throat> mine's a weird one. So I, I grew up in inner city Houston. Um, and so I was often, uh, you know, I was, I, I was steeped in African-American culture as a kid. And uh, even the, the, the middle school and high school I went to uh, out near Prairie View, uh, Texas, uh, I remember the moment that it came really cl crystal clear is me and my boys were all hanging out and uh, we, you know, we were just being rowdy, getting in trouble. And the principal walked over and basically um, we were on a level that was below him. And so he was kind of above us pointing down and he basically, you know, said, you, 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 and you saying the names, I'm not going to say the names of, of the guys on here, but you know, so you, 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 and you, and basically he pointed at all the black kids that were around me without saying me and said, go to the, go to my office right now. And I remember kind of like being left out. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not black enough to, <laughs> to get in trouble here. And then he, basically I took one for the boys because then I was the only one who went to the office. And that was back in the days when you got beat by a principal uh, if you, you stepped out of line. So uh, I, I took five swats for the boys that day. But that's, wow. that cemented some like, yeah, I, I, I think I might hate some white people. Uh, yeah. And so just, and again, it was just out of a sense of discrimination and frustration um, that I, I, I kind of had to deal with. But yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a moment that sticks out to me. School in Texas was tough, man. Oh, yeah, we don't play down here. <laughs> <laughs> tough boys what well, let me ask you this so before we get to the interview just just kind of based on that so so when you guys see and here's the hard thing about um what dan's writing about he's correct here's the hard thing in following what he's writing about is that when you see injustice in something in other words you you look at something and you say okay, the kingdom of God is not supposed to look like that at all. Um, but you still want to walk in love, right? How do you guys deal with engaging a topic or a situation that doesn't look like the kingdom and give voice to what the kingdom should look like? 
Mm. Well, and I think the trick there is to know that justice and love are not mutually ex exclusive. In fact, I think they're very right. much tied up into each other, right? I think being polite, maybe. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, sometimes it's, for me, it's always checking myself first. You know, where am I at? Because I, I have my ideas of like, oh, hey, right, wrong, good, bad, whatever. But checking myself first and then having the right posture to enter into it. And sometimes that posture needs to be uh, needs to be one of complete and utter humility, right? It needs to be one of like, hey, like, I mean, you know, how are you going to enter into this? Um, and then and then there's other times where it's like, no, I I think I need to stand up here. Like, there needs to be some accountability. There needs to be some like, you need to know this is not right. I, and the trick is, it's it's incredibly situational, Roland. The question you ask, it's yeah. it's kind of up there. But I mean, that's what that's what is. That's what's blowing up Twitter, right? Is that people individually feel like, okay, I need to step into this conversation and kind of draw a line, you know? In other words, my my line is not squishy on this. I'm going to let you know what I think it should look like. And then now we're, start, now we're starting to see divisiveness on issues and politics and all kinds of other stuff. When, when we want to be not people of the Republican party or the democratic party or people of this issue or of this issue, but we want to be people of the kingdom. So whatever yeah. the kingdom looks like, whatever that needs to look like, that's what we follow. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Uh, here in my community in Knoxville, we have people who, um, who desperately love Jesus and are trying to figure out how to um, help people receive the kingdom here in our city, in our town but they may have diametrically opposite views about certain issues. So for example, the issue of immigration, we have people on both sides of the spectrum trying to follow Jesus, trying to love him, trying to be about his work, but they just don't share the same idea. So how do you hold all that together and intention and say, Hey, we're going to love each other. Um, and we're going to try to work through this, even though we don't agree. Right. Yeah, one of the things that sticks out, and Roland, you <clears throat> you mentioned it earlier. Uh, you'd kind of referenced this idea of a third way, um, and I am I am more and more convinced as I look at social media and Twitter and all these different things, where people they want it to be one way or the other. When we look at the life of Jesus, he he never he never kind of gave gave in or caved in or or kind of went one way or the other. He always presented an alternative way a third way a jesus way right. and um i think i think that's true for a lot of different issues the problem is is that it requires a, quite a bit of work quite a bit of understanding to really kind of suss that out and find the third way to find the jesus way right. can i get can i give you guys a quote on this topic that i think is yeah. pretty apropos um so this, I stumbled across this quote several years ago, and it is probably the one quote I have given to more people uh, than anything else, and more than any Bible verse, more than anything. People have said, hey, though, that quote, could you send that to me? Uh, I don't remember how I stumbled across it, but it comes from a book by a lady by the name of Wendy Greider. And she says this, she talks about the concept of generous spaciousness. And, and she's actually, she's talking about um, like the LGBTQ kind of conversation right now specifically, but I think you can apply this to just about any hot topic. She says this, generous spaciousness isn't a moral statement. It is a way of being together. It acknowledges that for a lot of reasons, including both legitimate and questionable ones, 
followers of Jesus land in different places on these questions. So these questions, whatever you want those questions to be. Right. It goes on to say, this reality isn't likely to go away anytime soon. So generous spaciousness makes room for people to wrestle, to discern, to change their mind, to clarify their beliefs and values, to sustain living in alignment with their convictions, and to follow their conscience. The only way this can thrive is if people have confidence in entrusting one another to the leading of the Holy Spirit. This frees us all um, from argument, persuasion, and anxiety. Instead of trying to change or control each other, we could be focused on our shared love for Christ and putting our energy into loving each other. And then I love, she says this, not just the hallmark kind of love, but the costly blood, sweat, and tears kind of love. The kind of love that grieves with each other, celebrates with each other, moves heavy furniture on hot, humid days, cooks vegan for the potluck, listens deeply, <laughs> bites one's tongue, extends the benefit of the doubt, chooses to trust, cultivates patience, extends kindness, corrects with gentleness, and intentionally finds concrete characteristics to affirm and encourage. Generous spaciousness keeps on making room for the other. And if there is one statement, besides all the statements of Jesus in the scriptures, if there's one statement that I would just say, can you live by this as Christian people? Can we do this? Can we create space for each other? That'd be it, man. Wendy, she has some great stuff, man. I think the spirit was working in her when she wrote that. Yeah, that is fantastic. Um, and that's a great uh, entree into this interview. So let's, um, let's kind of jump into this talk that I had with, uh, with Dan White Jr. and um, talk about love over fear and some of these topics. And uh, we hope you enjoy this from Dan. Well, hey, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have uh, Dan White Jr. with us. Dan's a, a friend and uh, he's one of the strategists, uh, movement strategists at V3. And uh, so we're really glad to have Dan from Syracuse, New York, to kind of talk about uh, his new book, Love Over Fear, uh, which really kind of rocked my world a little bit. And it seems like it uh, speaks to a lot of uh, questions that Christians and um, the Christian community can have in our world today. Um, and so welcome, Dan, from Syracuse. Yeah, it's good but to be with a blizzard, you. Blizzard going on. It's get we're getting hammered right now. I'm looking out the window as I'm talking to you, and it's 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 a snow apocalypse right now. Yeah, I love snow though. So being in Colorado, so it doesn't bother me. Um, well, cool. Well, hey, I wanted to I wanted to just jump jump right in and kind of um, talk about love over fear. Um, I was the first thing I was taken by was the title when I even before the book came out, you didn't say love over hate, which mm. hate hates kind of the antithesis of love. I guess that's how we'd think about sure. it, yeah. but you, but you said love over fear. And so maybe even that would even just kind of get us into this broad, um, discussion about the premise of the book, why you wrote it, kind of why you saw a need to write it. Right. Well, the, the origins of the book goes back to 2011 and um, there was just a little bit of the history of the church that I planted. We were, you know, we'd be considered a, miss, a missional church and we were entering into a very post-Christian city in Syracuse where about three and a half percent of the population attends church on a regular basis. Um, and 
we knew that in order for us to incarnate in this place, um, we were going to have to make space for uh, people along the theological spectrum as well as along the political spectrum to coexist in the same community. And uh, I didn't know exactly how we were going to do that, but I knew that we were just going to talk about love and Jesus a lot and allow that to be our center orientation. Well, in 2011, um, we had been in existence for uh, about three or four years already, and the Romney and Obama election hit. Um, if you remember that, it seems it's it really feels like child's play now compared to what we're in. We were in with the Trump and Hillary election, um, but I I had one sun one Sunday morning after um, our gathering. I had a woman come up to me, a dear woman, say that she had to leave our church because she was a conservative and felt like she was being ostracized and treated as an outcast, that she wasn't welcome in our church because she was a conservative. And I pleaded with her. I told her she was welcomed here, that she was, uh, she had a space at the table, but it wasn't enough for her and she left. And then two weeks later, um, with the same intensity, a couple came to me and said, Dan, we have to leave this church because we're progressives and we, we cannot be complicit with the injustice and conservatives that are in this church. We feel like we don't belong. We have to find another place to attend. And I pleaded with them, said the same thing that I said to the, to the dear woman two weeks earlier, and they left. And that disruption um, created a, um, a ripple effect in our community where people, specifically because of the election, started to argue, started to separate, and ultimately started to polarize and were unable to actually enjoy fellowship and with each other. And I didn't really have an answer to how to deal with that um, missional challenge. I mean, that's what was happening because of mission. We had... Uh, a diversity of political opinions in the same community, and I didn't really know how to deal with them. So I went on this exploration back then to figure out how to disciple people into um, what I use in the book is the word affection for one another. And in that research, I first thought that hate was the issue. I thought that people just hated each other or hated each other's political policies but the deeper I dug and the more I really dove into the scriptures, I realized that fear was the base issue. Fear was this uh, um, inner grip that people had towards the other, whether the other was a conservative or whether the other was a progressive. And that's what ultimately casts love out, the inability to have affection and move towards warmth or hospitality towards somebody. And so that's why, I, you know, you, you opened up talking about, you know, why not hate? Uh, and really it's because I, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus, but ultimately in the entire New Testament, we're seeing this war between love and fear. And love is the voice of King Jesus and fear is the voice of the enemy. Um, and that's why Jesus so many times uh, throughout the Gospels with his disciples says, fear not. Um, it's actually the most repeated command throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament. Fear is a gripping issue, um, and it showed up in my community, you know, in 2011, and took a lot of discipleship work to get us back to a place of being able to um, 
actively and aggressively love each other despite our differences. So I don't know if that helps with the context a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's in, um, it's in the Gospels, right? Jesus basically talks about it's easy to love um, someone like yeah. you, right? Even sinners right. do that. And so um, that's, probably, that's probably one of the hardest things I've, I've come yeah. to grips with too missionally is, is I, kind of, um, I kind of think that I'm on the cutting edge right. of justice and faith and everything, yeah. be, being yeah. a missional practitioner for, ju- you know, for people's wholeness. And so someone that's conservative, I kind of see them as being in the rearview mirror Mm. instead of uh, a co-laborer right yes. in yes. mission even in, even, yes. even in our differences so yeah. i have a really hard problem you know with all yeah. of this i mean yeah yeah um, well I, I mean i the the more that i dove into this the more i realized that that what i was trying to lead my church through was something that i hadn't gone through myself right. i had a fear issue in my own life and i hadn't really faced it ultimately because I thought I was delusional. I thought I'm not really afraid. Um, but the more I kind of unpacked my own fear in my life, I realized there was disgust and uh, disdain and, and, and all these emotions I had towards people that didn't think or believe or act like me. And it creates this buffer, this gap. Um, that I, what I use in the book, I call it the void. There's this void that's created. And um, there's really no way for us to press into the future of mission, whatever God wants to do here in the West, without facing the political disdain we have towards each other. Um, there's, there hasn't really been a time in U.S. history where there's been so much polarization or what, what um, anthropologists are calling siloing, which is um, 72% of conservatives only have conservative friends and 78, no, it's actually flipped. It's 72% of progressives only have progressive friends and 78%, uh, 72%, 8% of conservatives only have conservative friends. I get that right. stat. Mixed right. up. But right. Ultimately it's almost the same stat, you know, given it's, um, we really are siloing away from one another and this is the new divide and it's a new, it's a new void between us. And so I, I'm really, um, I'm really pressing on the church to consider that to love the enemy, to love the other is actually to cross that void. Um, and I found that I hadn't actually crossed that void. And that's why that was breaking out in my own church. Well, I mean, so that's an interesting, it's an interesting thought because as missional practitioners, which, you know, most of our listeners will be, Mm. um, they'll either be affectionate toward missional practice or involved in the things that we teach at Forge or you at V3. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about things like crossing cultural boundaries and voids to the LGBT community or to the poor or to, uh, ethnicities, um, you know, to biker gangs, to, I mm-hmm. mean, so all of these things that rub us the wrong way, yes. uh, we say, okay, God's called us to step over that cultural boundary and to display the kingdom of God in some way in that context. Yeah. And so it could be that the new mission, um, which is uncomfortable to me, I'll just admit is to cross the boundary into mm. a political spectrum that yeah. I'm very opposed to. 
Yeah. Right? Well, ultimately, yeah, the political spectrum, the way it works out is it does, you know, our political spectrum is built on the social issues that we're um, championing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so if we can't cross, well, if we're not willing to cross that void, um, we are going to be unhealed people. We're going to have a divided um, church. And um, I think Jesus piloted um, uncomfortably a third way, really a, a polarization busting discipleship group, the very first mm -hmm group of disciples um, politically were quite diverse, which is not a lot of research around that. You actually have to dive into Josephus and do yeah. a lot of first century unpacking of what all these different titles of Essenes and Pharisees and Sadducees and um, the Zealots and the Sakari party. These are all yeah. political parties. They're not just religious affiliations. They're actually, they have political, they had political agendas with political banners and they had um, politicians attached to them. And Jesus, by no accident, assembles all of them in one space, which I don't think was just, um, like I said, by accident. There was, he was purposely sending a message that he was going to disrupt the political stronghold um, and form a new politic, um, a new way of being together. And without Jesus, uh, you know, uh, a tax collector and Judas would obliterate each other. Um, right. And Jesus held that space. And it was a space of healing. It's a space of transformation. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's the cause of the church. Um, it's dangerous work. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, it, and, and most of the time, those people don't like to be in the same room. And you, you were sharing that even yourself personally. And so, it's, I mean, I relate with that. I'm repelled and disgusted by some of the ideology of uh, conservatives and even some stuff by progressives. And, and it, many times I don't even want to be at the table with them. Um, so this, you know, this is, this is really, really important work. If we're going to testify to the witness that Jesus is actually doing something <laughs> amongst yeah. us, that's unique and not politically um, just like our culture. Right. Well, so, let me ping off of that a little bit yeah. um, in your book. You, you have this section and you, and I highlighted it. You talk about how culture, culture basically tells us to fear certain things. And you've yeah. got this list like alt-right conservatives, yeah. progressives, feminists, white supremacists, immigrants, Muslims, basically you make your own list, right? Yeah. W that we all have these things and other people have these things and culture, um, almost instigates, you know, through yes. social media, oh, that's a good um, word, yeah. you know, if you watch, um, like when I want to watch the news, I try to watch CNN and Fox both, for example, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to get pulled right into, mm -hmm. um, you know, just one, one way of thinking. Yes. So what about when, when, when our supposed tribe, whether that's our church yeah. community um, our workplace, wherever we're kind of missionally present. Yes. Um, what about when that is telling us or when our faith uh -huh. leaders are pulling us yeah. toward that? Like what, what would you say to someone that's trying to conquer fear and walk mm. in love regardless of beliefs? Yeah. Political beliefs. So, 
so for someone that's kind of dwelling in a tribe that's peddling fear yeah um well that's there there's a there's a um there's a cost to breaking um breaking away without separating but kind of leading out front as a prophet um to testify to love um isn't that a song (laughs) yeah yeah or it should be (laughs) it should be um you know i mean i'll be honest with you in my own work on this i've had to break ranks with the fear um that was really being pushed by both the left and the right and i took hits for that and uh, received um, scapegoating and hatred and false labels about who I am. There's really no way to overthrow fear or even to make a dent in it as a prophet without experiencing the cruciform pain of that. Um, and, and so one of the first steps of moving from fear to love is knowing that it's, it's chaotic. Um, which I talk about in the book, Kenosis, is the self-emptying. Fear to love is not just a self-help journey. <laughs> it's not yeah. just a sentimental, um, you know, having better thoughts about people and in, in eliminating negative thoughts, although that is important. It's ultimately a real kenosis, a self-emptying. And in that, Jesus talks about that in Philippians. It's painful. And sometimes the pain comes from your own temper tantrums of how hard it is. And other times it comes from the lashes that you take from other people. I really do believe that we need, you know, we need heroes. We need people who are going to prophetically um, identify the voice of fear and identify the voice of love in their settings and their tribes, but ultimately starting with their own humility. Um, And that's, that's that's painful yeah um and i but i i i do think that's the the narrow way of jesus um that's what jesus experienced in creating this um this new way of being where both um foes and friends could come together and he experienced that hatred and scapegoating yeah i mean the we we believe this. Um, I think everyone listening believes that the kingdom, uh, God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus came to announce, um, is a different kingdom. Yes. Um, I mean, you even point out pointed out a few times. You know, the Jesus kingdom is not of this world, but it's undoubtedly for this world. Is yes. one of your is one of your quotes. Um, so how would you announce a kingdom narrative mm. uh, in a prophetic way on a social issue um, that is anti-kingdom, but do it, do it on the premise of what you're talking about in the book. So, you know, I mean, I, I didn't want to delve into anything political, but you know, just for an example that everyone can maybe relate to would be the immigration thing. Sure. So if you see an injustice uh, with your own Mm. eyes, we'll say Mm -hmm. uh, happening, uh, that's not of the kingdom of God. And so in a prophetic way, you want to speak into that. Sure. Um, But you also want to hold some of the things you're saying. Yeah. um, Love of enemy, you know? And so, 
you know, I'm, I'm asking you if you have all the answers, <laughs> so, but, um, you know, That's for, for those, question. for those yeah. of us that want to be good missional yeah. agents of the kingdom, announce the kingdom of God in the places we live, work and play. Yeah. Uh, but we see an injustice and we mm. still want to step into that prophetically yeah. yes. and still love the person that disagrees with that. Right. Carrying that out. Yeah. That's a great question. Well, um, I first have to probably challenge that the prophet is one that just speaks out. Um, I, I, I know that's the Old Testament caricature of the prophet, but the New Testament prophet is one who embodies and incarnates. And a lot of our prophetic MO that's kind of been building, uh, especially with social media, is that the, the prophet's just calling people out and they're dropping truth from, you know, they're just doing truth telling. Ultimately, I think that's ex carnate. Um, it it in what how that works uh, with our brains is that our our I do a lot of neuroscience in Love Over Fear, but our brains do not respond well um, to argumentation to someone just telling us that we're wrong or that you're complicit or you're this or you're that or you're ignorant or you're you know whatever argument we come up with to call out injustice we think it's working but ultimately it's actually working against us the amygdala which is the part our primal part of our brain the moment you are you probably have had this experience with a friend or your wife or husband Mm -hmm. you know when you try to pummel them with facts they it does not open up their pores. It doesn't make them receptive and it doesn't disarm them. It actually makes them double down even harder. And this is what's happening right now. I think a lot around the issue of injustice is that we're screaming and yelling and truth telling, but we're at, it's, I think it's actually backfiring because we're not incarnate with our enemies and so that's why I talk about affection in the book is that my, my church is passionate about refugees and immigrants. And there are a lot of people in our church that thought that that was more of a, uh, a uh, progressive Democrat talking point rather right. than a Jesus right. issue. Right. <laughs> and so rather than um, belittling them or labeling them or arguing with them or, or telling them to read this book because they're uninformed, we actually had to create affectionate spaces for uh, listening, active listening with each other. What happens in that space is that our prefrontal cortex opens up, which is the part of our brain that's responsible for complex emotions like empathy and forgiveness and kindness and all the fruits of the spirit operate right. in the prefrontal cortex. I, I think you can call out in, injustice specifically in the issue of immigration and, and the way we've been treating people at the border. Um, but if you're doing that without being incarnate with your enemies and having table fellowship and what I talk about is compassionate curiosity, mm-hmm. I think that you're actually working against your mission. <laughs> um, right. I re- I'm, I'm so convinced of that now that we actually have to, I don't, I don't think our message has to t- change. I actually think we have to explore the way Jesus approached um, the Pharisees. We love to highlight that the, the, that, Jesus flipped tables, but he ate, he ate upwards to 38. If we look at the gospels, 38 meals with Pharisees and he flipped tables twice. Yeah. So he was, he was willing to flip tables. I don't, (laughs) I don't want to cut that out of the text. 
but he was also willing to to dwell with them and actually enjoy their presence. He did. He laughed with them. He reclined at the table. He and this was a place of being winsome. And I think because of our information age, that part of activism has is being eliminated. Um, so there are some. I do have some real. Um, I mean, I have some real victories to story, stories of victory of people who were, you know, thought immigrants are people that should be treated like garbage who now are, see them as, as they see the image of God in them. They may not agree with some policy issues, but they actually, they, they do, they are able to identify when, when image bearers are being treated horrible. And they've changed that because of affection and that work of compassionate curiosity. Um, so that's the place I go to as what is enemy love is, is yeah. I think truth telling is a little overrated until you've actually done the work. Um, so, so. Pra so practically did that kind of, I'm looking for a summary statement. Did it kind <clears> of look like, um, sitting at, you, you know, you're sitting at a table with someone and it's loving debate, uh, kind of thing and, and discussion about, you know, <clears throat> Imago day and, uh, those kinds of things that gets them to that point or? Well, we actually hosted um, a discipleship pathway um, with people along the political spectrum. I write about this in the book. We, we invited a Muslim, we invited um, um, a gay couple, we invited a conservative, we invited uh, someone who was um, on public assistance. We invited across the spectrum people to take a discipleship journey with each other for eight weeks. It ended up being about 12 weeks. And there we worked through peacemaking dialogue, which is using um, the peace circle from the Onondaga Nation, which is um, actually right right on the perimeter of Syracuse. And it's, it's not so much bringing up a hot button issue and saying, okay, let's debate and talk. Um, it's, it's moderating um, questions and then creating boundaries for listening. So it's helping people to listen to each other. There are, you know, you flag people when they're out of bounds with it, when they characterize or they label or they demean um, or they blame. There are ways to create that conversation, but it's also just, it's mostly discipling us to listen to one another. The outcome over time, it's, it's more of an, it's more of a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a consequence of conversation is that people change their minds over time um, rather than the way we think it should be done in 240 characters on Twitter. Right. The, so I, I mean, I watched, I watched people who thought all Muslims were murderers repent of that. Um, mm. I've watched uh, people who thought that, um, um, you know, gay couples are the bane of society repent of that. I watched gay couples who thought all white straight people hated them um, chained. I mean, there's, I've seen that transformation because you, you work through moderated peacemaking dialogue ultimately is a discipleship mechanism. It's not just, Hey, let's have eight weeks and sure. see who can win the argument in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of churches have actually discerned that this, that that's a point of discipleship when it comes to, helping people love their enemy. We don't have lo enemy love discipleship pathways um, or right. discipleship groups. Um, but right. if, G if, if what Jesus is, says, you know, what Jesus says is true, that the furthest extent of love of neighbor is to love the enemy, um, then we should be discipling people on how to love their enemies, not just 
yeah. saying it, you know, in worship songs. Well, so as a movement director for V3, who is, you know, planting, training, planning, equipping mm. missional communities uh, across the country, would you say that a church that um, plants out of a, you know, I hate labels, but mm. a progressive leaning or something like that would be mm. um, not holistic in that they, if, if they don't look like the whole community around them. In other words, you know, mm. if, if the community, if the neighborhood around them is a big mixture of conservative and liberal and ethnic yeah. and whatever, um, you know, a year out from them planting, if they're very, very progressive in their sure. thought and stuff, then mm. should they be leaning into this as a, you know, strategy for lack, lack of a better term? Yeah. And that's a, that's a complex um, question. I, I, the, well, the first part, the, the V3, V3 churches are all over the spectrum. We have, we have conservative, we have open and affirming congregations. We have, uh, yeah, they're all over the yeah. spectrum. And, and my, probably my um, enemy love uh, hobby horse um, isn't, is certainly not pushed down into that culture. Um, but so, so the, the place that we actually come together in the V3 movement around our diversity is actually when we gather for training and you're in a space with someone who is a woman who's ordained for ministry and you're with a, a pastor who doesn't believe women should be ordained. And they're both in the same space with each other. And actually that's been transformative for softening, um, people's, the hard edges of people's opinions, um, the second part is if your community becomes homogenous um, around one issue, I don't know if you can, um, I don't know if it's possible to be, to control how, I, I'm careful about coercion and control. And so yeah. my own community um, that I planted 10 years ago reflects this, the, the pieces and parts that our elders were passionate about. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't be passionate about everything. Um, you know, there's all, they, they call that social justice fatigue right. or, or mission fatigue, right? We're, yeah. we're, we're going to be for every, you know, there, there's a certain, there's certain things that we hold dear and we, and we mission, we, we, we pursue them. Um, so every community is going to have some homogeneity. There's, I mean, that's, I hate to say that, but that's idealism says that that's, you know, that we can eliminate that completely. Um, there's a realism to uh, what happens when we gather that um, is that you will have in your community, you will still have diversity around um, political issues. Um, When you talk from the pulpit as if we're all on the same page, I think that's when you start eliminating space for people to be heard and to be uh, listened to and to actually you eliminate conversation. Um, I'm really, I can get really uh, snotty <laughs> about when pastors just make, um, you know, overt political statements from the pulpit um, without actually having those conversations before they preach them. Because right. when you do that from, from a place of power and from taking these stances, whatever it is, progressive or conservative, you, you are telling people that are there, okay, I don't belong here. Um, you're eliminating the space of conversation. 
and uh, so I, I just think that every community should be discerning polarization powers um, and rather than just trying to orient and create a space of belonging for their own people, their own tribe. Um, you know, some will yeah. have more success than others. There's a continuum to that. You know, there's a radical edge to, to enemy love. Um, and then, and not everybody can, can um, live on that edge. Pull, um, on, pull it off. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's ultimately, it's a space of intense tension all the time. Yeah. Um, where you're living in the both and rather than the either or. And a community of tension is not for everyone. Um, but I think it actually is a witness to the way that the Jew, Jews and Gentiles lived in tension um, with the way that the early disciples lived in tension. This is what King Jesus does. <laughs> right. Um, so. Well, and I, and I find it, uh, you know, going back to the point we made, we talked about earlier, I, I do think it, it seems like it would feel like the tension we would have in another missional exercise with another yes. um, group of people, you know, yes. however you want to label mm -hmm. them. And so mm -hmm. um, that those are kind of, you know, not badges, yes. but those yeah. are our callings, right? As yes, people, yes. as missional practitioners, we like to be on the edge, take the kingdom into places yes. that it's not. Yeah. And um, I sense that too, that the kingdom is, there are vacuums starting to develop because yes. of politics yes. right, in the places yes. where the kingdom should be the most fruitful and, and yes. be displayed the most, which is in the church. Right. So um, right. anyway, so I, find, I found that That's fascinating. Good. Yeah. Well, let me, let me end on something. So, it, you know, if this is kind of your, your book and this discussions kind of pricks at my own heart and, you mm. know, I want to get rid of my Twitter feed now. No, <laughs> so so I'm not so I'm not doing something I don't don't want to do. Um, but all of this, you know, it starts at us personally, right? Yes. And and so at the very beginning of your book, I actually I never highlight quotes, um, you know, that are put in books from other people. But the very first quote in chapter one, um, I did, and I underlined uh, what it said. It was Kristen Ulmer. Uh, mm -hmm. Your relationship with fear mm -hmm. is the most important one in your life because it's also a mirror of the relationship you have in your core. Yes. Which, man, that's like, that's mm -hmm. a mirror statement, you know, look yeah. in the mirror. So yeah. put your pastor hat on for just a second with the other church planners and practitioners listening. Mm -hmm. And it, it, for those of us that want to, overcome uh, divisiveness, mm -hmm. but we want to be, you know, we want to walk in love instead of fear, yes. um, more love than fear, then where, where would we start personally? I mean, yes. Well, the, the challenge is always to move beyond what's abstract and into the very explicit and, 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 and so when it comes to love or fear, we can just abstractly say, I have fears or I have love, you know, I love people in general, but to, to make space for people, people to be explicit and honest and vulnerable. Um, most adults are sophisticated enough to say that they don't have any 
legitimate fears. We use code words like concern or problematic or, you know, we, we, mm -hmm. we cover over the deeper fear with, with these kind of nicer words. So I, I like to create these um, one night spaces where I have people journal, um, giving them prompts around their fears, what they're afraid of, um, where there's inadequacies that they won't be able to meet, where there's angers that are unresolved and give people space to journal those and then actually put up on the, you're probably familiar with those big fat sticky white yeah. sticky notes, right? Sticky put them notes, up in yeah. a room and um, I put categories up, um, fear of um, a family member, fear of um, a part of your past. You can create seven or eight different categories and then allow people to put those up on the sticky note. And I typically do this with seven or eight people and it's a place of excavating fear and being honest about that. Um, most people, when you give them space to contemplate and you give them a safe environment, they're, they're amazed at how many fears are actually controlling their actions and their choices and their, their inner dialogue and their, and their, what they say online. Um, so then once you put those up on the board um, as a good um, practicing compassionate curiosity, that's where you start to ask people, so why did you put that up on the board? What, what is it about your family member? You wrote your mom up there. Why are you afraid of your mom? You know, and I've done this so many times and every time it, it opens up compassion in the room. And, and, and sometimes when you see something up on the board, you look at it and you think, why are they afraid of that? You can mock it in your right. head and think, right. what's the big deal? When people, when you help people excavate their story beyond the words that they put up on the board, um, that's where your compassion is open, can be opened up and you mm -hmm. start to feel some solidarity with them. You know, so I use that example of mom because this one woman wrote my mom. She said, um, when I'm with my mom, I turn into a child and I'm a 45 year old woman. Mm -hmm. I regress and my mom um, criticizes me, she mocks my choices, she's passive aggressive, and I just turn into a little five-year-old and say, you're right, mom, you're right, mom, you're right, mom. I'm afraid to be myself with my mom because I'm afraid that she'll criticize and, 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 and attack all the parts of myself that I love. You know, that's a powerful statement. And so those, I think we have to do more, creating more safe, environments to help people actually get to the explicit fears in their in their life um i shared a little bit of this in my book the story of my neighbor across the street who mm -hmm. um the first time i passed them i he got out from underneath his car he was wearing a belly shirt and he, he was wearing a bandana i sized him up as is a blue collar you know grease monkey and he threw it he he dropped an f-bomb and he was wearing an american flag shorts and i'm like that's not my kind of dude. Right. Um, so I went across the street, went into my house and told my wife, Oh, I saw the next door neighbor. He's a turd. <laughs> That's what I said. I didn't even meet the dude and I'm already calling him an excrement. Right. It's just, yeah. But that's related to fear. And the fear was for me is I feel inadequate to talk to a guy like that. I don't have anything in common with him. I don't, I'm not a manly man. I felt fear. And so I judged him because of fear. And so actually it was in one of those, those groups that I piloted um, that I actually shared my fear of that and mm -hmm. not being able to relate with 
this dude um, yeah. I don't feel like a dude. <laughs> so yeah. um, I don't know if that helps a little bit, but I, yeah. I, I think that's a first start. And that, that exercise, I would guess, is um, probably better in community yes. than journaling by yourself because you, exactly. can, you can write down your fear, close your journal, and put it away, and it's still hidden, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Well, cool. Well, Dan White Jr., thank you, my friend. And uh, mm. wish, I wish we had a couple more hours to just keep digging into this because um, I think it's, boy, it is really for our time these days mm. and the divisiveness and um, things that are going on in culture are yes. making a lot of us just weary and tired. And yes. um, I think this is a great way to to step into some, step into it intentionally and not yes. just retreat from it and pretend right. it doesn't exist. And so right. um, I'd encourage everyone listening to head out to Amazon or uh, other places that you buy books and pick up Love Over Fear and uh, put in Dan White Jr. You can pick up his other books as well. And then they can find you um, thev3movement.org, right? is uh, v3's the, yeah, website the v3 yeah. the v3movement.org uh, especially if you're interested in planting a church or mm. uh, you're thinking about that get in contact with them uh, and then mm. do you have your own website where they can yeah i have a danwhitejr.com and then there's a, a special fun little website called loveoverfearproject.com that's kind of loaded with stuff related to the book there's actually original songs written for the book there's a oh, wow. discipleship right. guide that goes along with the book that's free there so okay yeah that's great well yeah. thanks man well i so much appreciate all you do and appreciate your time and uh, we love you guys at v3 we love mm. you for all you do at forge uh, as well and mm. um just just thanks for being part of the kingdom man oh yeah man i'm, I'm glad we're all we're all in this together so Okay. Well, have, have fun in the snow. You should go build a snowman or something. Yeah. <laughs> Peace to you, man. Peace. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Hey, great conversation with uh, Dan White Jr. Dan, thanks for, for joining us again. And um, next week we're going to have a conversation with Beth Wolf, who is the lead pastor at Clarksburg Church in Maryland, and have a discussion about how she has uh, entered a church community that's been there for a long time and has um, been shifting it into a missional kind of posture and presence, uh, some of the wins that she's had and some of the challenges that she's had. And so I think you'll really enjoy uh, getting to know Beth. She also runs a Forge Hub there in that city. So uh, please join us for that. As always, we'd love for you to jump on iTunes and uh, give us a good rating. Uh, it'll help people find the podcast and be able to join us weekly for this conversation. Uh, we appreciate your support. Hope you're subscribing to this and, and jumping on each week, maybe on your drive to work or however you like to listen to podcasts. Um, and I guess we will see you guys next week. Alan, you're going to finish the Messiah. Is your I'll, assignment, I'll get, right? I'll get and it then, done. Yeah. And then if you guys uh, want to start watching Chosen, we'll, uh, we'll have a little fodder around that in the future. So, uh, but really good to hang out with you guys as always and loved the conversation today. So Alan, Terry, see you next week. See you, man. See you next week.